and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor at Horse and Hound. Well, it has been a busy week once again of top level sport and at the not so top level, I was out eventing last week, my first time at a full on British eventing event for a year and I even managed to come home with a rosette. So all in all, it was an excellent weekend. Our guest this week is top show rider Robert Walker. As we approach this year's Horse of the Year show, he talks about his Hoys memories and why this show is so special. The one thing I needed was a Hoys championship. And I remember it was um, just the most amazing thing. I mean, I, I was absolutely made up. I'll be handing over to my colleague Polly Bryan to lead our news review this week, which will include a look back at the Lemieux National Dressage Championships and Blenheim Palace horse trials. Finally, equestrian psychology coach Charlie Unwin will join us to talk about effective goal setting. We don't often think about our goals that much. What is it that's going to get us there? How do we manage ourselves in between? What can we expect it to feel like when we're at different stages of the journey? So that's enough of me. Tighten up that final stud and let's get started. and welcome to Horse and Hound's guest interview. I'm Alex Robinson, showing editor here at Horse and Hound. It's not long until the 2021 Horse of the Year show held at the NEC in Birmingham, which is just a few weeks away. And Hoy's marked the end of the calendar for the showing competitors. And a win or placing at Hoy's is the biggest achievement for anyone involved in showing. It really is our pinnacle. And one rider who is no stranger to riding that centre line, and I bet he could actually do it with his eyes closed, that's horse producer and horse and hound columnist Robert Walker. And Rob's kindly taken some time out of his Hoy's prep to talk to us today about some of his memories of the famous show and what Hoy's really means to him. Hi, Rob. How are you? Good morning, Alex. Good morning. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your your busy preparation for Hoys. I'm sure you're super kind of on with that. How's it all going? Yeah, good. I mean, we've just come home from the British Show Horse Championship, so there's several of the horses are having a little bit of a, a, a you know a week off, which means um, I've got time to be riding lots of the three and three year olds and some of the four year olds that have just come back in. So it's no rest for the wicked at this end. We're um, heavily sort of into <laughs> next year's preparation, if you can if you can say that. But obviously, the um, I think it's probably got easier as I've got older. I mean, in the beginning, I was you know OCD about rugs until David Tatlow <laughs> said to me one day, "You do realise, Robert, it will break its coat whether you put twenty rugs on or one." And <laughs> and it was true. It's right. You know, we all we all get carried away with it. We all get o- over the top about it. And um, yeah, we let to keep a a silk hood on them now and on one rug, but we don't go overboard with it. You know, yeah. if, if a horse is going to break his coat, it'll break it regardless of how many rugs you put on. Brilliant. And how many have you got going to Hoys this year? How many are on the Hoys bus, as many people say? I think we've got about 14 classes, um, which is is great. There are probably some of those horses that may not go. We've got three lightweights that qualified, two middles, two heavies. The trouble is, say if those classes started at 10, we'd take them all. Mm-hmm. But Hoys, as many people know, it's not the most um, time friendly. And to have those horses ready and be in the ring by seven in the morning, washed off after being worked in, um, whether we feel we can do them all justice, 
is you know we're very lucky that hunters are owned by one person and she would rather we do a good job with a couple of them than try and do too many mm-hmm. and and have the day a bit of a nightmare so if there's something that we feel would be benefit from another year then we'll perhaps leave at home and you know we, we, we say we, we, we shall we shall make final plans what goes and what doesn't go at the time but then obviously for the rest of the week we've got the cobs and mm. pack and uh small nice very nice young small hunter um and uh is his is his ponies and zara's ponies so yeah it's good very very enjoyable week when i look around the yard there isn't i wouldn't swap the horses for anybody else's and that's a good position to be in Definitely. So, Rob, I'm going to take you right back now. Um, can you remember the very first time you rode at Hoy's? Um, I would imagine the final would be held at Wembley back then. What What was it like? It was, which um, obviously was, you know, a thing in itself. You know, you come off the motorway, drive down into Wembley, and, you know, that in itself was an occasion, wasn't it? It was, it was the most amazing thing to be able to ride at Wembley Stadium. Obviously, when I was younger, my dad left me at home because... Somebody was there to look after the yard with um, maybe with some grooms when he took the hunters. And so when I was uh, 16, I qualified a small hunter. Mm-hmm. And I remember, well, if, if I take you back even before I got to the horse of the year show itself, to qualify on a second, I think, at Lincoln County to, to then, um, who was rider at the top of a game, Sue Rawdon. I remember that feeling of the hair standing up on the back of my neck. <laughs> I'm not saying I would be so pleased to be second or third or qualifying. Now I'm not. I'm not I'm not, things have changed an awful lot. <laughs> but I, I remember that feeling. I can I can still remember the class. I can remember what she was riding. Mm. Um, and to get there, I was so pleased. I had a little small hunter called uh, Double Vision. You know, it was just the most amazing thing. We um, dad clipped her out all ready for me. She was a grey, so she looked well clipped. And I had, I had a fantastic ride. Yes, I was mm. unplaced, but I had a great ride. You know, that took me into when I was 17. I went back with another small hunter and we finished third in the small hunter wow. of the year. And then, and of course, back then, there was time for every class to go through to the final judging. Mm-hmm. So I got, I got my chance to wear my top hat and tails. And I've got the most lovely picture of me in third and Robert Oliver in fourth. Looking, and Robert sat next to me on uh, Toblerone of Jeffrey Osborne's looking down at me uh, who is this little little squeaking? <laughs> but, but I remember it, it was a brilliant occasion. I, you know, and I was absolutely chuffed to bits to finish third at the Horse of the Year show yeah. in a small hunter class. And that's why anybody who is um, in the intermediate ranks, don't be afraid. You know, if you've got a horse, take your chance and go. Because you've got a horse, can you knock on the door? You'll, you'll hopefully it'll be let in. Brilliant. And and can you take me back to your first win as well? Do you remember your first Hoy's win and how did it feel to, you know, finally get a, a red rosette there? Yeah, I do. I, I remember, so we must have had something in, I would be 23 at the time, I think. Mm-hmm. We won lots of major championships around the circuit, but there was one class, one show still eluding us. And we stood in the Fox Hunters bar and I stood there the night before and I was talking to a good friend, Keith Shaw, show jumper, and a couple of others. And I was saying, God, oh, I'd just love to win here. I just want to, mm-hmm. want to have a win. And then, anyway, blow me. The next morning, I uh, won the lightweight show hunter of the year. Wow. And um, he was on the horse. When I first started producing, he was the first horse that we had in to produce. He was a lightweight hunter called Hallmark. 
And I remember it was um, just the most amazing thing because you know, I'm not saying hunter classes aren't prestigious now and, and, and high, highly competitive, but you imagine back then to beat the likes of Robert Oliver, David Tatlow, Bill Bryan, mm. uh, Roger Stack, uh, Vince. So they, it, was, it was full of names. Dina Whiteman, it was just full of names. So, I mean, I, I was absolutely made up. <laughs> and um, we won the Cobbs as well that week with... Just Jimmy would have been, and um, so it, it, it's, then that was it. We, 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 we got going, but I always felt the one thing I needed was a, a Hoyes Championship. And a couple of years later, we took a four-year-old riding horse. We'd broken it in that year, um, Iron Blue Chip Two, and it just felt on song. He had the innocence of a young horse, but he was blessed with so much quality. And uh, we took him, and it was Judy Bradwell judging, and he won the class in the morning after giving the most amazing ride for a four-year-old. And then in the evening, they used to have the Riding Horse Championship when there was no Supreme Hoys. It was the Riding mm-hmm. Horse Championship was on the Sunday evening. And I remember it just being packed to the rafters, and he went champion. And that was almost it for us. I, I felt like, wow, that was it now. We've, <laughs> yeah. we've achieved, you know, we've got that Hoys Championship. There's two young producers, Sarah and I. It was, mm. you know, that was that was it. It was amazing, and you know, like you know, everybody just says that now. Well, which was your best result at Hoyes? I mean, it, it it doesn't always have to be one of those big champions. I remember we've had a, a little mare called Ivy's Dream, who was possibly one of the most tricky horses I think I've ever produced. She was full of full of excitement and and probably not the best temperament to be a show horse if that makes sense she had too much energy she would would go there and she won the small riding horse of the year and she just absolutely ticks every single box Mm -hmm. that day and so you know like to finish in reserve champion yes she wasn't champion but I, i remember that one because it was just she just went amazing for what was you know, quite a complex little character and things like that. You know, it's always a different memories for all sorts of different things, but it's been very good to us. And I suppose with that comes more pressure every year. Yeah, definitely. And you've obviously had so many wins there since. Um, and you've mentioned a few of those favourite victories, but do you have any other kind of centre line moments which really stick out to you as, you know, some of the best? Um, probably my last ones are always the best. I think as you get, get older, you, you appreciate them that bit more. Um, so in the beginning, obviously, when I was still able to party and do my job as well, <laughs> before you, you know, you could you could celebrate it and end up at the Hilton at night and drink far too much and it all just passed in the blur. Mm. Whereas now, I can literally remember every stride on the lap of honour when I'm doing it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's just horses... Yeah, you get so you appreciate them all for different ways. You know, the likes of uh, oh, our first hunter champion that was there, that would be pride and joy. They all mean so much in different little ways. I mean, I'm obviously, I, I, predominantly we have hunters. It's a big occasion. Everybody wants mm-hmm. to win that hunter championship, as they do all the others, but it's just a big thing for us. The, the place has been so good to us. To win the Supreme with So Smart, this little coloured pop yeah. that came along, and uh, another horse which I call is one of my horses of my lifetime, which would be Broadstone Dalton. Yeah, he was the most amazing show horse. People would come to the collecting ring just to watch him. Oh. He was just the most beautiful horse, and uh, 
he'd been a little bit unlucky at Hoy. He's had a couple of seconds there, and then one day everything just fell right for him. He won his class, he went champion, and then that evening he went um, went supreme, and that was that was amazing. I mean, he literally he, he walked on air that night. Mm-hmm. He was just unbelievable how he went. Yeah, no, it, it has been very very good to me. But I say. The pressure comes with it because I yeah. know one year we're going to go there, and I know it sounds really weird that people, somebody could even say this, but we're, going to, we're not going to have a winner there one year. And yeah. I know people say, "Yeah, but lots of people go there and don't have a winner." But we've been so lucky there. It's, I suppose it's a bit like Nick Henson going to uh, Cheltenham and not having a winner. They would call mm-hmm. that as a bit of a failure, and that's how we would feel. I, I don't know. We're, we're just very lucky. We've got some lovely horses. We've been very lucky there. And um, it, you know, we gosh, yes, one year there'll be a year that just you know doesn't happen for us, um, which I think you've got to take on the chin with it a little bit because hoys is hoys, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you know, with the mark system, you you know, unless the judges have used marks before, you could anything could happen. You know, I don't think it's right that any judge should stand at the front there, and wait for the winner to come forward, and not know what their winner is. Yeah. I don't think it, in any form of showing, uh, but. It probably does save Hoy's 10 minutes per class, which, at the gen- scheme of things, it probably saves them 50 minutes a day. And yeah. I can see when time is tight, then probably it is a good thing to use them. But you also have to accept that there will be classes where there'll be a little bit of a freak result, and you have to take that on the chin. That's just what it is. It's just that's, that, that's how it's for you. And Hoys is such a different show for our for our animals who have probably spent the majority of the season kind of in big grass rings, in big county shows. How do you prepare your young horses for the atmosphere? Um, I would be one. I mean, I know a lot of people like to put all, put the erasmataz or in front of the horses at home and practice with loud clapping and cheering and music and this, that and the other. I've always felt, give the horse nice experiences going there and he'll probably accept what he sees there better mm-hmm. um, than having a fright beforehand. Yeah. So we, we would, yes, we will go to an indoor school. Luckily, you've just come home from two championship shows where they've had evening performances. So perhaps some animals have experienced it and you'll, you'll know roughly how they cope with it. Uh, but we always like to box them up, take them to an indoor school probably a couple of times before the before the horse of the year show and just let them have a nice experience. So they're learning to lengthen and shorten because don't forget hoys for a big horse is tight and you've got nose to tail a little bit. So you have to be able to shorten the horse well and let him come back into underneath you a little bit into the corners just because it's not one you can get a big raking stride on rounds. And you've got to teach him those things. And But also... You know, perhaps if we take in three or four to the school, what's the biggest thing a show horse has got to do? And people that forget this is just stand there and do nothing. Yeah. So we will often just stand, have a gather together in the indoor school, in the centre of the indoor. Don't rush straight back to the lorry and get them home. Just let them stand there. Just let them stand and relax because, you know, like, you know, I always say that for a show horse. I mean, 90% of his life is still still. That's so true. (laughs) So, you know, for us, it's it's that. And and I'd say some horses will need different things. We'll we'll take a couple of horses to follow hounds before the horse of the issue just to give them a little bit of interest outside the yard and, 
a bit of something different, but uh, mainly our preparation will always be about making it a nice experience. We don't like to frighten them at home, and then because then you'll find you know that you'll take the horse and they'll be leading him to the ramp and they'll be doing droppings already because he's he's tense and nervous. Yeah. Well, that's no good because then you can't get the best out of the horse's muscles and brain if he's if he's uptight. Mm -hmm. So we always like to make it an enjoyable experience. So actually, when you do go to the horse of the year. Hopefully, walking down that alleyway to the to the ring is, you know, they just think, oh, just going to the indoor, yeah, and then yeah. it, they accept it easier. Um, you know, you, you can do all the preparation you like, but some, I mean, that gosh, I remember um, Starry Knight, who's again one of our best winners there. He's had he's had six winners on the trot. He's never been mm -hmm. beaten there. And up until his sixth, sixth year, we would always play a CD in the barn. Um, because he was horrendous. He just literally had nerves from clapping and the atmosphere of it all. So every year he won, I was be sort of treading on eggshells, sat on him and just, just making sure he stayed calm and relaxed for his presentation. Kind of a friend of ours gave us a uh, CD where they videoed um, the, the cricket. So there yeah. was nothing for short moments and then applause. Nothing for short moments and then applause. And we'd have that on a CD player in the yard, and every single horse would carry on eating their hay by <laughs> him, and he would always come to the door and look at the CD player. And so you couldn't, we didn't, in the end, it, with him, it was just like, well, I've tried everything we could, but um, he just had that thing about it until the day we were going to retire him on his final occasion. He must have known that was his day for the crowd because he never flinched a muscle. He never moved. He never shifted sideways. And I thought, you are git after six seasons of me holding my breath. The day I'm going to retire you, you have decided that you love the clapping. You've stood like a rock. You could have stood on Leisha Lehman's shoes any point at any when you presented that sash around your head. And he never moved. He never moved. And I thought, you are bugger. After all these years... <laughs> um, you know, so through some, it's just time, and you know, each horse is different. But we, yeah, we, we try and make it an enjoyable experience because I say there's nothing worse than sitting on a horse in that arena with the clapping and, and tension being underneath you. Yeah, it's certainly electric. And just finally, Rob, um, so Hoy's, I mean, it's all about the showing for you, but I um, just wondered, do you get any downtime when, when you're there, and what do you like to kind of do if you do get any? Um, well, I, I hope I hope maybe Grandson Media are going to listen to this because I mean, all the conversations are between all the professional riders. Years ago, it used to be in the most amazing time where everybody would gather together and watch the show jumping and things yeah. like that. But nowadays, with restrictions on time, there it's so busy and literally. So you're riding in at five in the morning, and then maybe the riding time in the evenings aren't till maybe ten at night. It is full on. We are a stable that will use the evening working ins because I think it's wrong to put a horse to bed all damp and wet. Mm. So we'll try and just exercise through the day. Um, yes, it's nice to watch Puissance night. I think anybody that's there should experience that. It's great fun. Yeah. Um, and uh, but it's probably not, yeah. Years ago, we used to, everybody used to socialise, box on to bar, or and watch the show jumping. But it's probably just time restrictions don't necessarily allow that now. Well, fabulous. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Rob. And we can't wait to hear about your results from Hoys and best of luck. Yeah, thank you.
Hello, I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm taking over the reins of the news section this week as Pippa is off to report at the Eventing European Championships in Switzerland, which is very exciting. I'm joined today by two members of our lovely news team. We have news writer Becky Murray. Hi, Becky. Hi, Polly. And senior news writer Lucy Elder. Hi, Lucy. Hello. So it's been a pretty exciting week for me, actually. I have been out reporting from the Lemur National Dressage Championships at their brand new home of Summerford Park in Cheshire. Um, I admit it did feel quite a long way away from my home in Surrey. Uh, but once we got there, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. The facilities, the atmosphere were great. We were lucky with the weather pretty much. And the whole event just had a bit of extra polish compared to when it was last held in 2019, I thought. Um, we obviously saw some amazing dressage as well. Charlotte Dujardin was one of the big stories. She had a clean sweep in the small tour classes riding Imhotep, who is an incredibly exciting um, eight-year-old. He's by Everdale, who uh, people might recognize the name of him. He is the ride of Lottie Fry. She rode Everdale out at the Olympics and at the European Championships this year. Imhotep is one of his sons. He really reminds me of his sire, actually. He's definitely one to watch out for. Don't be surprised to see him on a British team in the not so distant future. We also had some really fabulous young horses. I was trying to single one out as my pick, but uh, I couldn't. It was very difficult. I was really blown away by Becky Moody's seven-year-old winner, Jaegerbomb. He was incredibly impressive. And of course, there was Emil Forey, who was crowned British national champion with Donna DiMaggio. I was so happy for Emil. Lovely for him to take the title 27 years after the last time he won it with Virtue in 1994. I'm sure some of our listeners might remember that. Anyway, the Nationals was not the only major equestrian event to take place last weekend. Lucy, you were out reporting from Blenheim Horse Trials, weren't you? I was, Polly, and the sport there as well was absolutely exceptional. It really, really was a fantastic week. Oh, so good to hear. So victory in the end went to 24-year-old Yasmin Ingham, didn't it? Lucy, tell us why Yasmin was so impressive. So there was a lot of really impressive things about Yasmin's performance. Um from start to finish, really. Her performance with Banzai Dura, it was flawless. They led from Thursday lunchtime with their 25.2 dressage. So they were the overnight leader then going into Friday, you know, for the second day of dressage. They'll have watched all those competitors and mm. nobody, nobody was able to topple them from that top spot. Then, of course, leader again going into the cross country and they came home 17 seconds inside the time and they were the fastest time of the day, actually, across country. But it wasn't just, you know, that they came home inside the time. Their jumping round, again, was exceptional. And then they came out on Sunday and produced such a classy clear on the final day it was and it was unbelievably close as well that was the other thing so coming into that final day there was just one show jump separating first to tenth so there was no room for error and the pressure that Yasmin must have felt and she actually she she did speak about the pressure that she did feel it must have been immense um as it was it was hers to lose really but what really stood out was that not only, you know, was she able to, to manage that pressure, but she seemed to thrive under it. You know, it, if anything, it made her it made her performance stronger. Like she was, her skill was incredible. So it was, it's really, really exciting when you see a horse and rider of that standard and for them to win it in the ring. So for me, that was, that was phenomenal. And you Sounds look, so exciting. It, it really was. I'm, I'm still quite buzzing from it really, actually. <laughs> um, and you kind of look down that list of the, the, the top 10, you've got the world champion the reigning badminton champion you've got two members of the gold medal winning tokyo olympic team <laughs> and Ta- and yasmin at the top of 
of all of that. So um, yeah, she really yeah. beat some top some top combinations, didn't she? And yeah. well, she was very modest about it. I thought from uh, from reading mm-hmm. the report. <laughs> yeah, she was. She said that luck was on her side. But I mean, we know in anything to do with horses and anything to do in sport, really, you know, the, there is always an element of luck. But this wasn't luck. This was this was exceptional talent and skill and a partnership between horse and rider, which I cannot wait to see where they get to in the future. Oh my gosh. And I thought it was interesting that I think it was eight of the top 10 places were filled by female riders, three of which were still under the age of 25. That's Yasmin, Susie Berry, who was third, and Heidi Coy, who was seventh. Lucy, that's so exciting. What does that mean for the future of eventing in this country? Yeah, it's extremely exciting, isn't it? I It's been a phenomenal year of sport in general, but it really has been an exceptional year for, for women in sport too. And I asked Yasmin after, just after her winning round, I asked her if, you know, that, you know, being part of that, being part of those phenomenal achievements, what, what that means to her and if it's inspired her seeing those. And she's made no secret of the fact that uh, Banzai Dural was bought with uh, the Paris 2024 Olympics in mind. And she said ah. that watching the Olympics this year has only, you know, sort of added that, you know, fuel to her fire and she found it really inspiring. So I thought that was quite interesting. Mm. And for me, again, the professionalism and the way that these, these, as you said, sort of quite young riders who are treating themselves as athletes, their performance, their skill, they looked so mature and they looked absolutely, you know, um, in the right place in between those, you know, really established legends in in the top 10. So I thought that was phenomenally exciting. This wasn't luck. It wasn't fluke. This was their performance. This was what they've been working towards, you know, building um, all that dedication and time and, and talent. So that for me was one of the big takeaways of the weekend oh it's so exciting to see you know what there is to come for for the future um lucy was there anyone else there who who really caught your eye perhaps you finished maybe further down the leaderboard but um it really stood out Yes, I must also mention the winner of the Blenheim eight and nine-year-old championship, which was Nicola Wilson with the lovely Cool Park Sarko. They were the only finisher to break the sub-30 barrier, actually, uh, which was which was wonderful to see. It's a really exciting young horse coming through. And Nicola was actually fourth as well on Hawkeye. Uh, she was just getting ready to head off from Blenheim to the European Championships, which, as you said, Pippa's out covering this week. So that's exciting. I also want to hop back to the CCI four-star long class to talk about Ireland Susie Berry, who came in third. Her performance was one of the real standouts to me um, across all three phases with John the Bull. We know Susie's good, but it was superb you know from she was superb from start to finish and what I thought was interesting too is is the openness across sport to talk about you know mindset and Susie was very open in her post cross-country interview about how tough this year has been for her she broke her arm in April she hasn't had you know the easiest of summers coming back from that and she spoke really quite openly about how that impacted her mindset she said she doesn't normally feel nerves but she did before the cross country and again because those nerves were unfamiliar she wasn't sure how that might impact her impact her riding and what we saw was an f- exceptional cross country round and I thought 
can only be a good thing when you've got role models like her at the top of the sport who are mm-hmm. openly talking about that um, for younger athletes coming through because it is quite easy especially when you're sort of standing and watching and you see these incredible horses these fantastic riders and when so much of social media as well is pushing through you know all these fabulous results and incredible photos to know what's going on um, behind those photos and that you know it's it's all right to talk about things like that and I think yeah. again I think that was that was one of the big takeaways for me yeah it's really interesting what you say about riders being very open and honest about you know the highs and the lows and how it affects them it, it reminds me actually of um of something that I I just thought was great at the nationals when um we were speaking to Becky Moody uh who won you know a couple of titles that 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 weekend um but she she won the medium gold with uh jack diamond a young horse who she was very open openly admitted hasn't been very easy and you know she wasn't always sure if he was going to if he was going to do well i think she said it took her about two years to even get him to work consistently in an outline and it's just so lovely to hear these really top exceptional riders being so honest that you know things don't always go to plan and Everyone, I'm sure, can relate to that. Lucy, just coming back to Blenheim again, there was a piece of really big news that came out this weekend, wasn't there? Yes, we had some massive news on Sunday afternoon after the final result was decided. So uh, Andrew Nicholson, the absolute eventing legend, told us that he is stepping back from competing at top level competition. There have been quite a lot of speculation and wondering about uh, Oliver Townend's entry on Swallow Springs who we know is one of Andrew's absolute top horses Mm. and they finished 10th overall with again an fabulous performance across all three phases and that secured their five-star qualification as combination and it was after that that Andrew revealed that yeah the plan is for him to take a step back and uh, we will hopefully be seeing some exciting things from Oliver and Swallow Springs in future but it was it was an interesting one really because it was kind of the end of we had the excitement of the new talent the new faces coming through Yasmin as a young winner and things like that and then waving farewell from top level competition to this absolute phenomenal eventing legend who we have all enjoyed watching ride across country for for many many years so yeah. it was a, a blenheim of, of beginnings and endings and and everything in between so a phenomenal week a bit of a sense of, sort of changing of the guard i guess yeah. Well, it sounds like a really great weekend of sport. Just speaking of great British equestrian sport, Lucy, I also wanted to um, just touch on a new story that you've been working on that appears in this week's issue of Horse and Hound. This is something that emerged from the Paralympic Games last month where you were also reporting. Just tell us what, what that story is. So this one is is a call, really, for the UK's major show organisers to... Um, help Britain's paradressage riders win gold medals in Paris uh, and also to help bridge the gap between disability and able-bodied sport. So Lee Pearson and Natasha Baker both spoke uh, when we were out in Tokyo actually uh, of the challenges of preparing horses for kind of that really high pressure high octane atmosphere of championships which I mean they did have in Tokyo but it was different because there were no crowds there but mm. it was still and and obviously you were out there for the Olympics Polly you know it's it's still a serious atmosphere in that yeah. main imposing arena it's incredible how much atmosphere there was it, without yeah. full full stands it was absolutely amazing. <laughs> And of course, Lee won triple gold in Tokyo. And he said that having, if there were, you know, 10,000 people around there, that might have been a 
overload for for Brisa. Mm. Um, and so looking ahead to Paris, it's only three years away. They need to get these horses used to kind of atmosphere with crowds that we will hopefully have in Paris. So they were kind of imploring the major shows to say, you know, let us come and ride, please let us come so we can we can get our horses used to that atmosphere. So when we go to Paris, they're used to it. They can um, really shine in front of in front of that crowd and hopefully bring home some more some more medals. Yeah. And also there's the other part of this as well, which Natasha actually brought up, which was that she'd like to see the Paralympic movement becoming more in line with the Olympic equivalent and that people need to see disability sport for, for many reasons. And one of those reasons is to bring investment and growth. She said, you know, first of all, we need to be more inclusive and para riders want that recognition that able, their able-bodied counterparts receive and she urged major shows not to be scared of them and they want to be put into these bigger atmospheres and while it's steps being made towards that um, in terms of bridging the gap between uh, disability and able-bodied sport there is still too much of a gap she was saying um, mm. and we know of course that Sophie Wells's ride Don Cara M, he went into Parasport because he was limited in able-bodied dressage. Mm. Um, and Natasha was saying how, you know, if you haven't got that visibility, how are people going to know what Parasport's about, for one? And also, it's, it is fantastic to watch. It really is as well. And so having Parasport there, people will be able to see it, see what it's about and open their eyes really to think maybe, oh, I really want to be involved in that. Or I've got a horse actually that isn't going to make it to the next level and able-bodied. But you know what? They could go to Paris and win a medal. So there's many reasons really why this is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And so what has been the response from the show organisers that you've spoken to for the story? It's been broadly positive, really. Your horse live director, Emma Bedford, she told us that paradressage demonstrations never fail to amaze and delight the crowds at Your Horse Live. We know that they are big supporters of paradressage and that that is, the demonstrations are often a big part of their shows. Mm. Um, and they are determined, she told me that they're determined that para riders and their horses will benefit from the same opportunities as all our riders and using their show as a training opportunity. Um, it's particularly important for younger horses. So yeah, she said that para riders and enthusiasts will always be an integral part of what makes Your Horse Live such a special event. Um, and then we spoke to uh, Hickstead director Lizzie Bunn who of course Hickstead, dressage at Hickstead was a big supporter of para dressage and that side has recently come under the wider Hickstead umbrella um, and so it's still in its infancy there but para dressage is something the venue is going to consider again. I spoke to H Power as well which organises Royal Windsor and uh, London International Horse mm. Show um, and they also said their pro programmes are under are constantly under review and that they've included para riders in their events uh, in the past and they do recognize the importance of inclusion for the sport so you know this conversation is happening I think that's the important thing and yeah. we'll can hopefully see see our para riders in action in future because I want to watch them I I loved watching Parasport out in Tokyo I love watching the Paralympics when it's on TV every four years and four years is a long time to wait isn't it so yeah I, I want to see them at our big shows too Definitely. I agree. And yeah, let's hope that um, that we can see more of our fabulous paradressage riders at British shows in the future. Becky, we're going to come over to you now to talk about a piece of news that you've covered this week about the fact that thousands of people have signed a petition asking for speed cameras to be installed in the new forest to help protect the lives of the ponies there. Becky, tell us a bit more about this. How much of a problem is speeding in the new forest? What has been the impact on the animals there? 
Well, sadly, there have been a lot of reports over the years of animals being struck by drivers in the New Forest. Um, some of these have been caused by speeding drivers or those just not driving to these conditions of the roads. Mm. Now, these animals are on New Forest full-time grazing and they are owned and looked after by the people who live there, the commoners. And, you know, they're not wild ponies. So when these tragedies happen, that owner is getting a phone call in the middle of the night to say their pony has been killed. Oh. The lady who started one of the petitions Sarah Weston received a call to say her four-year-old gelding had been killed by a car in August and her petition received more than 50,000 signatures in 10 days. Oh my gosh. I mean, I just can't even imagine how awful it must be to, as you say, to get a call like that. What are, what sort of numbers are we are we looking like? There's, there's been several of, of these you know occurrences this year, right? That's right. From 1st of January to date, nine ponies and three donkeys have been killed and six more and ponies and three donkeys have been injured and had to be put down and it's also you know there's been scenarios where it's been groups four ponies might have been killed in one go there was an incident in new year which was really awful so it's you know it is something that does does happen every year there okay i was going to say this isn't the first time this issue of speeding has been raised in in the new forest is it no we have sadly reported on a number of collisions and as i say there was that incident where four were killed and they were all owned by one person and it does feel that average speed cameras it's agreed but by a lot of people in the new forest that these really could make a difference yeah i mean it definitely sounds like something does need to be done what have the local police said well, it comes down to a number of different authorities um, in order to move this forward. And there is the issue of funding. Mm. Both the district council and the county council are supportive. But the county council said it would come down to Hampshire Constabulary to cover the costs. Now, I spoke to the force and they said there is no policing justification or funding opportunities to support the average speed cameras. But the police and crime commissioner, Donna Jones, has also been involved and she's held conversations with the police. She said it's important for all these agencies to work together to explore feasible options. Mm. And she is in contact with the New Forest verderers with regards to the next steps. Okay, well, I mean, it's good to have raised the, the issue. Let's keep our fingers crossed for some some movement and progress in that area. Just last of all, I wanted to mention a very touching story that really struck me this week about a racehorse making visits to a care home in Wiltshire. Lucy, how did this come about? It's lovely, isn't it? So it's Racing Charities Greatwood and Retraining of Racehorses are working with Racing Together team. And it's a six-week pilot which started earlier in September. And it involves former racehorse Uzbek visiting a care home in Marlborough. And the aim is to explore and measure the benefits to physical and mental health of the care home residents. So I think it's I think that's wonderful. Um, I'll be really interested to see the outcome of, of their findings. And um, yeah, we've seen some lovely photos from there as well. Oh, I mean, it is absolutely lovely. And it's just such a great reminder of the power and the positive impact that horses can have on people's lives. Well, thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Becky, for joining us on the Horse and Hound podcast today. It's been great to catch up. Now we're going over to performance psychologist and mental coach Charlie Unwin. Charlie works across sport, business and the military and helps riders to optimise their performance from the inside out, in training and in competition. He's passionate about working with equestrians because the horse's performance is an extension of the rider's. 
His clients won an incredible four gold medals at the recent Olympics in Tokyo, as well as three silvers and one bronze. Over to you, Charlie. Hi everyone, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about setting effective goals. This is a subject that comes up a lot, and there's good reason for that. Those who are able to set really effective goals are able to manage their attention and direct their efforts towards what it is that they want to achieve. The problem is, we don't often think about our goals that much. We don't give them much attention. We kind of have this idea in the back of our heads of, of somewhere we want to be, something that we want to achieve. But we don't spend time really doing our homework. What is it that's going to get us there? How do we manage ourselves in between? What can we expect it to feel like when we're at different stages of the journey? And so for that reason, uh, setting goals is one of the most profound tools in sports psychology and indeed in life. Now, when it comes to goal setting, many of you may be aware of the idea of SMART goals, which includes principles such as making goals really specific, make them measurable, make them achievable, and that stuff's all really good. The challenge for me is that no single goal is gonna solve all our problems. No single goal is going to get us to where we want to be. If we define our goal as competing at badminton or, you know, racing or getting our jockey's license or something like that, there's a heck of a lot that obviously has to happen for us to get there. And so it doesn't really play a valuable role in our day-to-day behaviours. On the other hand, if we set tiny little goals, we need to know that they are moving towards something, that there's a reason, that there's a motivation for wanting to do all these little things well. So for me, goal setting is very much a dynamic process. It's a kind of blueprint that we have in our mind that's constantly guiding us on a day-to-day basis. It's both motivating us and it's focusing us. And those are the two key elements that good goal setting should give us. I remember starting out with the British skeleton team, the Winter Olympic team. And skeleton is that rather crazy sport where you're going headfirst down a mountain at about 90 miles an hour. You're whizzing around corners, experiencing about 5G going around the corners. It's a crazy sport. And what I noticed when I first arrived to work with the British Skeleton Squad, and this was about three years before the Sochi Olympics, was that I noticed that they all had their own routines. They all sort of did their own things, whether that was warming up in training and in competition. And as I started to get curious about what they were doing and why they were doing it, um, I noticed that they sort of came back to me with the same kind of answers. So... When I said to them, well, why are you listening to music at that point in your process? Uh, Why are you doing that particular warm-up exercise? Uh, They would come back to me with the same answers, which were often around, well, I've always done it, or my coach told me to do it, or maybe the world champion does it, and if they do it, it's good enough for me. But the problem with these responses is that very few of them were about doing it because it helps me be better at what I do. In other words, it wasn't connected to the very process which gets results. It was more of a kind of, it's just something that I know I need to do. And for me, this is where goal setting comes in. If we were to take uh, a aspirational goal, if you were to take a goal that you might have, 
Uh, and you were to break that goal down into simple chunks. So even something like doing a clear round in the show jumping arena, that's a goal that most people have, which by the way, isn't a particularly good goal in itself because I'm kind of assuming that most people want to go clear. You wouldn't be going into that arena if you weren't capable of going clear. And therefore that as a goal in itself can really only put pressure on you because it's kind of articulating an outcome that's expected and anything less of that is probably bad news and you'll be disappointed by. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily control our attention positively on what it is that we need to do. So as we break a goal like that down, it may be that there are certain components that are always true and consistent of going clear, maintaining an even rhythm, for example, uh, maintaining certain posture, sitting up after every fence, uh, accuracy and using the proper lines into the fence, using the corners of the arena to be able to, um, to get straight to the next fence, whatever it might be. Psychological goals, like taking one fence at a time, staying relaxed, these are all good goals, but they underpin that fundamental goal of being able to go clear. Now, the reason it's important to be able to break it down to this level is because the brain can really only focus on one thing at a time. And therefore, as long as we're just concerned about going clear, as long as we're cantering up to the first fence, we're not really focused and we'll probably only feel the pressure of getting over it. And therefore, our thoughts and our movements can start to break down. We can start to get stressed, frustrated uh, and tense. And then we're making the conditions in which we're more likely to roll a pole. So goals become really important and i use goal setting as a way of preparing riders for periods of training for competitions themselves um, and fundamentally linking these aspirational goals that get them excited and get them out of bed in the morning with the breakdown into smaller day-to-day -day goals that allow them to stay focused uh, on one thing at a time that's the kind of essence of goal setting. And I would strongly urge you to put pen to paper and have a go at doing that yourself. Break it down and break goals down into smaller chunks and see how far you can go through that process. And when you set goals for competition, really set very deliberate goals about one or two things that you're going to maintain your attention on from beginning to end. And if there are things that you still don't know or things that you don't know how to do, like, for example, how do I stay physically relaxed? Then that's something you can learn about, you can find out about, you can Google, or you can come along to one of our courses. So that's a little introduction into goal setting. Um, hopefully it sort of uh, sparks your curiosity. And if you want to find out more, please do visit center10.com where we've got some great courses for riders and for coaches uh, that'll help you progress further with that. I'll see you next time. Thank you, Charlie. Next week, Charlie will be back to talk about the winning mindset. Our interview on the next episode will be with Gemma Tattersall talking about her first five-star win at Victon plus that public proposal. We'll also have all the week's news, including a review of the European Eventing Championships. Thanks for listening into the podcast today. We have over 3,000 people downloading most of our episodes now, and it's lovely to see our podcast family growing all the time. 
If you're enjoying listening to the podcast, it would be great if you could take a moment to rate or review it in your app, as this will help others to see the podcast. Talk to you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.